In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you for two things. I just pray, Lord, that you would help me to do this in your strength. This would not be a a show of the flesh. Lord, I ask you that you would strengthen me, that your spirit would empower me, your spirit would empower those listening to take in your word seriously and truly, humbly. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak it secondly as the very oracles of God that you indeed have spoken. These are your words. These are not my words. And again, that we would submit to them gladly for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you remember, back to your conversion, how you thought others would view you with the new knowledge that you have become a Christian? I'm not sure I thought about it directly. That certainly wasn't the first thing on my mind. Jesus is Lord was the first thing on my mind. But if you're like me, I at least thought that people would have a fairly positive response. Perhaps they would respect me, what had happened to me. Perhaps they'd be happy for me. Maybe even be compelled by my testimony. But I had a rude awakening about three months in when I got a phone call from one of my former best friends who was a pastor's kid. Who, you know, we talk about people cussing each people out, but I really did get cussed out. I mean, you could just feel the heat coming through the phone. And why? Well, because I no longer wanted to get high with him. I no longer wanted to get drunk with him. I no longer wanted to listen to the same music that, that, certain, that, was sort of in a, that brought with it a certain lifestyle. And for this, he hated me for it. And honestly, it made me pretty confused in the beginning. Until I read more of the scriptures and saw that scripture everywhere declares that our Conversions are so powerful and deep that it changes us from the inside out and that this will actually be a threat, a thorn, and at some level an expose of unbelievers. And they don't like that. They don't like that reality that this change just happened in this particular individual. Now, sometimes maybe they will if God is working in an individual or is giving you favor. But Peter here is instructing Asian believers, Gentile believers. He's instructing you and me, reminding us that we will be maligned. We will be thought of as strange. This is to be expected as part of following Christ as exiles. And this touches many different levels of our lives. 
And Peter is saying that here in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Peter is saying, as he sort of said in, in other ways in previous chapters, that you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer because you've put on the mind of Christ, who also suffered. He did not seek suffering, but he knew that the way to obey God and accomplish his work was through suffering. And oftentimes, you cannot obey God unless you choose at the same time to suffer. <laughs> because you live in a world that is not always happy, most of the time probably not happy, at the fact that you have come to know and follow Jesus. That's the testimony of Scripture. And this is Peter's point in chapter 4. It's his point in the text we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be looking at verse 4 and 5. About the response of unbelievers given the fact that you have become a follower of Jesus. And beginning in verse 4, Peter says, In all of this, they are surprised you don't run with them. In all of this, well, in all of what? Well, with regard to the phenomenon that we no longer indulge and live for the lust that Peter just mentioned in the previous verses. We no longer live by the lusts of men. We no longer are driven along by our passions primarily. What feels best to us? What is most comfortable to us? What, what will give us our flesh the most pleasure? We are no longer driven by that impulse anymore. We no longer give ourselves to drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Nearly every idolatry is abominable, but God wants us to know that they really are. Anything that you worship other than the living God is an abominable thing. Not because maybe itself is, because it could be a person, but because you have given yourself to it as God, and that is abominable. But we no longer give ourselves to living that way. And in this reality, they are surprised. They are surprised. They are surprised, he says, that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Clearly, they here are the friends or acquaintances, could be family members, these believers had before being a Christian. Can you think about that sphere, that group that you hung with before you knew Christ? They, those people are surprised. You can put names on those people, can't you? I can. And perhaps some of you are, are too young to really have that, and that's okay. But for many of us, being saved later in life... We had a, a Rolodex of individuals that we ran with. And these people think it's strange. He says, he says here, and the NAS translates it, they are surprised that you do not run with them. They are surprised. The, the language is think it's strange. The same term is used in Acts 17.20 when Paul says, or when the people say about Paul as he's sharing the gospel around there, in Athens, they say, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Strange is something foreign to your experience, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's something you've never seen. It's something you've never heard before. 
And implicit in this reality that Peter's talking about here is the fact that aside from some great awakenings in history, true conversions are not very common enough that people aren't caught off guard. They are. It's strange. Surprising. It's not something they see every day. The new birth is a strange and wonderful thing when it happens. And it has pretty amazing ripple effects, doesn't it? I may have already said this story. This is the negative of getting older because I cannot remember what I say and what I don't say. But it'll illustrate, this, this story probably illustrates the same, you know, lots of different passages of the Bible and I bring it up over and over. But this past summer, some of our kids were doing competitive swimming and I met a, a young woman there. I say young, she was probably my age. But I met a lady there that I, I don't, I didn't never, I've never talked to before. I had recognized her to some degree, but I never talked to her before. And she came up to me, she tapped me on the shoulder, and she told me, well, she knew my name at first, and then she said, are you, are you, are you Chris? Like, and I was like, yeah. I was like, who are you? And she told me her name. And she's like, you're, you're changed, aren't you? And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, well, my sister actually knew you in high school, and she told me that you got saved. And I was like, that was 23 years ago, 22 years ago. She's like, yeah, I, I know, it, it had a big impact. Not only did I not know her sister, not really talked to her before, I didn't know her. It's crazy. We, we have to recognize that the salvation of one individual is not only wonderful, but it's powerful, isn't it? It is a mighty deed of the Lord. It's a mighty deed. It sends shockwaves into the friends and the family spheres of your life. I was blown away by that. Thankfully, she was a Christian, and she was just thrilled for it, and we talked about things, and it was, it was just great. So refreshing. But Peter is saying here that the lives of these believers, or just all Christians, really, are so transformed by the gospel that people who once knew them now think they are strange, and they're surprised of what's going on. These people, they're not necessarily glad for the change. Perhaps they're intrigued by it. Perhaps if you were causing your family and your parents a lot of heartache, and they've watched you cause your parents heartache, they're glad for it. <laughs> um, but they think they are surprised. But why? Why are these people surprised? Well, they're surprised that you don't run with them anymore into the same excesses of dissipation. Now, the term run just means that. It can just mean to rush headlong or literally to run on foot. It's not walking. It's, you know, we're, we're chasing something. The idea is that these believers used to rush into sensual and drunken parties. This is their default mode. They would, if they have obligations, they get those done in order to what? Run into excesses of dissipation. That's what we live for. 
And they're surprised that you don't want to do that anymore. In other words, this wasn't something they were ashamed of or bashful about. They would run into them. It reminds me of college life. That's the situation for so many um, parents. Think through that very carefully as you think about your kids experiencing the college life. Please don't be so worldly and naive to think that your kid needs to experience the college life or the university life like many people in the world will say they need to. Please don't go down that road. Most of the time, all it is is like Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever the current version of that is. It's just debauchery and so much of it. I'm not saying that every kid that goes to university will do that, but if you want to test them and try them and throw them into the lion's den the quickest and in a way that's the most concentrated, do that. But I advise you, be careful. At least have long talks, set up, you know, just figure it out to where you can help mitigate some of the impact. Maybe they can stay at home. Maybe they can do it online. Again, not saying if you go to university, you're gonna, that's going to happen to you, but just be aware. Just be aware. Excesses of dissipation. I mean, you, you just look at the stats on alcoholism in college. It's crazy. It's like, it's, like, it's like one out of every three students lives like an alcoholic. I looked at these last week when I was looking up this, the whole word on drunkenness here. It's crazy. It's probably higher than that, frankly. In most universities. I didn't have an, uh, an experience like that, thankfully, but I mean, I went to a school that was Christian ministry and had great brothers, and, but for many, it's just not like that. Secular universities, especially. But I mean, they're everywhere. But that's the way they think. Let's run. Let's run into the excesses of dissipation. You know, let's go get hammered. Let's go get drunk. Let's go get high. They run into this. They can't wait. You know, and they think, old Chris over here, he didn't come out with us anymore. You know, what's up with that? It's the third week in a row he hadn't shown up. Keeps turning us down. What's going on? They run into those things. Excesses of dissipation, the word for excess it's the idea of a pouring over and overflowing. And the term here, dissipation, it's a word that literally means, literally means unsaved. It's the idea of a life that's the opposite of a delivered life. Of course, in that sense, it's like a, a life in total waste and destitution. The life of sensuality and drinking parties on the weekends and lusts and pornography and that lifestyle is a life that is in shambles from God's perspective. It is a waste. It is ruined. This is God's perspective of indulging the flesh. It's not what the world would have you think it is. Every, I mean, how many ads do you get where, it, I mean, it could be toothpaste, and there's some woman on there that's supposed to lure you in, right? It could be hamburgers, and there's some woman, you know, or there's, or some 
I don't know, whatever, cooler, and they're all having a party, you know. It's just the world wants you to think that's not strange. You're strange for not doing it, right? That's what they want you to think. Every billboard, every advertisement on television wants you to think it's normal. It's normal. Ruining your life via alcohol and affairs. Taking on new gender identities. This is all normal. This is all progressive. This is actually advancement. God's view, it's dissipation. It's it's a waste. It's not freedom. It's not sophistication. It's not fulfillment. It's dissipation. Something from which one must be saved. We should take on God's perspective about them, right? We should, we should, we should pity them. They live for this stuff. We should, we should feel very bad for them because they think that that's what life is all about. Groping in the dark. It's interesting, just as a side note, this is sort of a, a little peek into the, into the first century life of a sinner before they know Christ. You know, here Peter tells us. It's interesting. And guess what? It's not much different. <laughs> Is it than our current context? It's not a whole lot different, is it? So much for human progress. The reality is we're not getting any better, are we? Science hasn't made us better, internet hasn't made us better. We are the same. We all express our sinnerhood, as Kepha told us, from the womb. Excesses of dissipation, these things that bring ruin and waste into your life. So Peter says, your former crew thinks you're strange if you're in Christ, and, and I think, as we reflect on this text, I mean, I think you would agree that we have to say... It shouldn't just be our former crew that thinks we're weird. It should be our current crew, right? Or at least what I mean by that is your current spheres. I'm not talking about maybe at New Covenant. I'm just talking about outside of New Covenant in your neighborhoods and in your, in your workplaces and wherever. Shouldn't they be surprised too at the decisions that you make now? I mean, whatever, whatever you chose to do back then at your conversion to follow Jesus and all the behavioral impacts of that, Aren't those still the choices you're making now? And aren't you still around the world to some degree now? And therefore, won't you still be thought of as strange to some degree now? Or are you blending in? Do people outside of New Covenant view you as different? And not just because you homeschool, Not maybe because you're a bad dresser. That's not why they think you're weird. But specifically because you seek to live a holy life. You don't like to talk like they do. You don't like to gossip like they do. You don't go you don't you don't you don't you don't want to go on these weekend parties like they do. 
And more to the point, if people do recognize you're different, do they know why? Do they know that you've been delivered by Christ? I just want to encourage all of you to please exploit every opportunity to speak of Christ's power in your life. Tell them why. Those are some of the easiest situations, right? They want to do this. You don't think it's going to be healthy for you. And you tell them why. I had a customer four or five years ago. Again, probably to use the illustration ten times, but whatever. I had a customer four or five years ago. Um, we were doing a large project for them. And so I was talking with her quite a bit. She was the main decision maker or whatever. And... Um, Fairly well-off customer. But anyway, um, she noticed as she spent time with me that I never cussed. And as a construction worker or manager of a construction site, you know, that's not common. She anticipated that she could just sort of expect that that's how I would interact. It turned out it convicted her. It's Interesting. She literally, we were talking one day, and she literally just sort of stopped me in her tracks, and, and she just said, you don't, you don't ever cuss, do you? This had been after, you know, several months, and I'm like, well, I mean, the Lord has changed me in terms of how I use my tongue. And she's like, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I claim to be a Christian, but, you know, I, I cuss from time to time, you know, and she's it's a little bit more in time, from time to time. But... But it convicted her, and you could see the wheels turning in her head. That this is not normal. Right? This is not normal. By the way, I don't know if it still is, but as of a few years ago, maybe earlier 2000s, 2010, I don't know, I'll lose track of time, it was becoming somewhat um, fashionable to cuss, for Christians to cuss. And, and, and speak like the world. I hope that never takes root here. Um, that's just absolute foolishness. And people get on these word games. Well, the word doesn't really mean what it means just, because, just the way you blah, 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 blah. Hey, look. Keep your conscience clean. Stay above reproach. Don't go down that road. It just leads into... Just loop, you know, loopholes that Satan can exploit and will ruin your testimony. But not only is it strange and surprising to people, because you don't run into the excesses that they go into, but Peter says it also can make them mad. And I think that woman that talked to me, I think she actually was a little put off, because I didn't immediately say, well, I cuss when no one's looking. You know, I, I, don't, I do. I do too. I didn't really go there. But it can make people mad. It says they malign you. They're surprised and they malign you. The NIV says they heap abuse on you. Malign here means to rail against, to verbally reproach, to seek to shame. Your actions, or here, probably, perhaps your inaction of going to indulge in sin with these folks has hit a nerve with them. 
You know, as long as you were drinking buddies and bong buddies and, you know, evil joking buddies, the fangs and the claws were hidden. They were retracted, right? But once it came out that you started living for Jesus and you wanted to do what was right before him, well, then they begin to not like you, not like that very much. True colors come out. True colors. And again, as I've already said, this is strange from God's perspective. This is strange. How can people malign you because you don't sin like you used to? Right? How can people hate you because you don't do things that destroy your life like you used to? Isn't it sad but it's it's weird from our i mean now that we have eyes to see it is people know that adultery and fornication and drunkenness are not virtues they know that they know they're not noble and yet when someone becomes clean and sober no longer living for these things because of jesus it doesn't bring them happiness. Now, if you get clean and sober, you'll get applauded all day long. But if you become clean and sober because Jesus has rocked you and forgiven of you of your sin, <laughs> well, then it's a completely different animal. Because, wait a minute, you mean you didn't do that to become a better person? You did that because you what? You, you, you felt like you needed saving from sin? Uh, well, I don't want to go down that road because that implies I got sin. Right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. They're okay if you're clean and sober, proud of you, get awards. But not if it's for Jesus' sake. They don't like that. So kids, I was thinking about you, young people. Some of you follow Jesus, right? Some of you are still sorting that out. Am I a Christian? Am I not? How do I know? Those are good things to work out. Let me encourage you that if you really want to follow Jesus, you can. You can. You have to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to turn away from your sin. And you know what? You personally have to call on the Lord to forgive you of your sin. Your mom and dad can't do that for you. They would love to, but they can't. This is between you and the Lord. You have to call on the Lord and say, Lord, I, I need you to forgive me. I'm a sinner. I really am. And I need your forgiveness. And your son is, is, is worth everything, and I want to follow him. And that's, that's really, in some ways, if you mean that, that's really almost how easy it is at the beginning. But as you follow Jesus, it's important for you to know that Peter tells us here in this book that if you follow Jesus, people could hate you because you follow him. And if you remember Jesus, what happened to him? Did he go on to live a really great life in his, in his earthly ministry? Comfortable and, you know, everybody loved him? No. He was killed. And you know what? We shouldn't be scared of that. Because we have the hope of eternal life. But just understand that people could malign you. Now, that's, a, that's sort of an odd word. We don't talk like that. But malign just means to speak evil about. So you have to be ready and count the cost. Are you willing to follow Jesus even though people speak evil of you? 
It, probably, it may not be everybody. probably won't be. But it could be some. And you have to be ready. He's worth it. And just remember that if they think of you as evil, they're the ones who need to change, not you. But this malice, this, this maligning, this can manifest in many ways. Ostracism, meanings like they don't want to hang out with you anymore. Slander, gossip, railing, like I had a few times after being a believer. This, the Bible speaks of this phenomenon of the hatred and reproach of the wicked on the righteous from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus says things like, again, listen, this just tells you how, how really the nature of our warfare, the, the, the rationale for the persecution of Christians is really so irrational. And Jesus captures it in just a few words. They hated me without a cause. You know, that's how deep it is. It's without a cause. There's no good reason other than that they're energized by something far more insidious and cosmic. And that's true. It's true. John tells us this. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Well, how so, John? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John reminds us here that you can tell if someone's a Christian. You can tell if someone is not a Christian. He says the children of God, children of the devil, are obvious. They're plain for all to see. That's the idea. It's not that hard. John uses this term. Plainly recognized in public. Well, what in particular should be recognized he says here, righteousness and love. That is, if you do not practice righteousness, if, if, God's, if seeking God's will and doing what's right in God's sight is not your heartbeat, nor if you don't love your brethren, and loving brethren is not just living your life and letting everyone else do their own thing. No, loving brethren is engaging with your brethren, positively pursuing your brethren, loving your brethren because that's your family now. If those things aren't happening in your life, John says, you're, of a, you're, you're, you're a child of the devil. Be freed from your delusion to think that you can live lives that aren't seeking God's righteousness, nor loving brethren, and call yourself a Christian. John says, be, just be convinced. It, it is obvious. And he's saying, I think, as you observe someone's life over a certain period of time, we all have flashes and moments where we embarrass even ourselves and all of that. But John is saying the one who loves his brother and the one who practices righteousness, that's obviously a believer. The one who doesn't is the child of the devil. 
And then he, and then he brings out Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, what, what an amazing story, Genesis 4. The first story we get after sin enters the world with folks other than Adam and Eve. Of course, it's their children, right? It's Cain and Abel. And John reflects back on them as a demonstration of the children of God and the children of the devil. And it says that Cain slew his brother, being of the evil one. Why? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. This is, again, in some ways, sort of ridiculous. Why did Cain hate his brother? His brother was a man of faith and righteousness. That's why. (laughs) He was a man who loved God and lived like it. His deeds from day to day were governed by doing what is right in God's sight. And the one deed we have recorded in the early pages of Genesis tells us that that Abel had a, a sincere, deep faith and gratitude to the Lord shown in his offering. The text says both Cain and Abel gave offerings or sacrifices. Cain was a farmer from, from the tilling of the ground. Abel was one over livestock. Each of them gave out of their resources. Cain gave vegetables or fruit that he had planted. Abel gives of the firstlings of the flock and the fat portions, the text says. Now, giving the firstlings of the flock and the delightful fat portions took faith. You know, later we would read under the law that that's the fat portions is what the Lord really wanted. As one who smokes meat, I understand that very well. It's the good stuff. It's the best tasting part. And the Lord says, I want that part. And Abel gave that part. Now, giving the firstlings of the flock and the delightful fat portions took faith, doesn't it? If one gave from goats or lambs or whatever it was, and it was the firstlings of the flock, you didn't know if more would come or not, but you wanted to give those things. Those were best. He wanted to express his love and devotion to the Lord by his gift, by giving the best. It's a way of saying, all of mine is yours. And again, I want to give you my best. Abel's offering showed where his heart was. And I do think that there does seem to be a qualitative difference in the type of sacrifice that was given between Cain and Abel. Not, not, in, the one, not in the sense that one is vegetables and one is meat. That's, that's not so much what I mean. But I think the fact that one was firstlings and the best probably sheds light that Cain's was not. The value of the firstlings and the value of the fat portions of Abel's reveal that Abel truly knew that God required the best. Not in some way of putting God in Abel's debt. 
but as an expression of devotion and love to the Lord. It was worship. Cain's offering was sort of status quo. This is really important. This, this is so important. They both offered something. But only one God had regard for. Cain had a low devotion, faith in the Lord, if at any, it doesn't seem like he had it. And this was, and you see this even, you see this unbelief and this disregard, disrespect of the Lord even more, because when God came and said, I'm not going to accept your sacrifice, Cain, instead of penitence, you get arrogance, defiance, and disrespect from Cain. We have to ask ourselves, what about you? What do you bring to the Lord day in and day out? Truly. Is it the dregs of your life? I mean, maybe you give a few dollars here. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you give them a few minutes in the week. Maybe on your way to such, such and such place, you listen to a half of a message on the radio, and you think that that's enough, or you think that that's really what it is. And when it comes time to gather with the brethren in corporate prayer, go to your accountability group, come to church, Sunday school, these kinds of things where you can really grow and show your solidarity with the body, you think they're optional. Oh, but soccer's not optional, swimming's not optional. Fishing's not optional. Vacations aren't optional. All these other things, though, are. And I'm not here to give people a guilt trip for not showing up to stuff, but I want to ask you, are you giving your best? Remember Malachi? That's a rough book. God comes to the people. He says, why are you bringing me this sick little lamb? I'm tired of it. Give me what's best. If I'm a father, where is my honor? How many of you can truly say, I want to expend all for the advancement of the gospel? How many of y'all can say that truly in your life? If God is your father, where is his honor? He is God after all. Some of you may need to get adjusted in these things. Certainly there are things we enjoy in this life, but in proportion, brethren. In proportion. God didn't say, Abel, give me all your food. He said, I just want the best. Right. You've got to give God your best. It's best for you. God doesn't need your meat. He doesn't need your money. You need to give it away. <laughs> you need to give it away. Your time, your energy. And brethren, I'm preaching right at me too on this. But a life lived like that will mean the world will hate you. And Peter says this, don't be surprised, brethren, First John 3.10, or 3.13, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. 
You know why Peter and John tell us that the wicked are going to be surprised at us, speak evil of us, say that we're strange and this and that? So that we aren't surprised. But you know, this can happen in this body too. It can happen here. This rivalry spirit, right? Cain and Abel. Why did Cain slay his brother? Because his brother's deeds are righteous. John says, don't love like that. Be careful that you don't begin to malign or mock or, 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 or just, I don't know, just make fun of someone because they take following Christ seriously. Don't do that. That's loving like Cain. Don't mock them. Reflect on yourself. Not that you're, you become just like them, because that also is a cul-de-sac. <laughs> but insofar as they exemplify faith and devotion to the Lord, be glad for that, and work on that yourself. But don't mock them. Peter and John want, want us to know, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Don't think, how could they look at me like this? How could they feel this way about me? Don't think that. We cannot personalize these things. Ben, ben shared a little while ago that it's not flesh and blood against which we wage war. It's principalities and powers. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one. We didn't really get that clearly spelled out in Genesis 4, but John tells us he was being energized by Satan. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Your gentle behavior and commitment to Christ may mean that these people who think you're strange, they might come to Christ. You know, your witness might convince them, but it may not. As you're around them, you know, you might impact them in a way where they're just like, I want what you got, right? That's, that's like best of all circumstances. Most of the time, though, we're going to experience that they won't. And when they don't, it also means that they're going to potentially say things evil about us. And so the question is, if people go on to hate us or be spiteful toward us because we follow Christ, what, what is our hope or relief? What, what is our recourse? Well, Peter, Peter tells us, remember the day of judgment. That's what he says. Is that what you would say to someone who's going through it, being persecuted, being thought of as evil? You know, or maligning, or being, you're being mistreated and you're counseling this person, do you remind them? They will give account to him who is ready to judge in the living and the dead. Oh, Peter, that's so harsh. No, that's the truth. This truth, it does something really important within us, right? It frees us from having to settle the score. You don't have to. Oh, that's so freeing. Because oftentimes trying to settle the score in this world is just flat out messy and oftentimes feels impossible. And I mean with people in the world. I'm not talking about amongst your brethren. Amongst your brethren, there needs to be 
the score always needs to be sort of zero. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't want to be in each other's debts. And if there is wrongdoing and bitterness, that needs to be dealt with quickly, as Jesus says. I'm talking about with the world. And I mean, there could be a professing believer who's mistreated you, and this text is still true. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Peter's point here is that what's your hope or relief? Well, the hope and relief is the fact that you're not their judge. But this doesn't mean they don't have one. God is their judge. God is the absolutely righteous judge. And this text says he is a ready judge. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account of him. Think of this. Brethren, have you thought about this lately? Think of the language. They will give an account to him. This is something they do. They will be brought forward before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will have to tell him why they have lived like they have. They will have to tell him why they have hated God's people. Pilate will have to tell him of his cowardice when he handed over Jesus to the executioners. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the, war, the, the living and the dead. They will have to give an account why they have hated the gospel. They will give an account why they have chosen self-indulgence over love. They will have to give an account why the world was more glorious to them than Jesus, the Lord of glory. They will have to say all this. You know, they will give an account. Brethren, make no mistake, God will repay. God sees it all. One day He will set the record straight, and that is not a bad motive for holding your tongue, keeping a clean conscience, and not lashing back. That's a good motive. It's not unspiritual. And also praying for them. We must not, as Christians, give way to bitterness when we're maligned by the wicked or anyone. And if we do give way to bitterness or, or lashing back or, or slander, it shows that, that we have valued the opinions and approval of men over God's. It shows to them that, well, for us it is a battle of flesh and blood and faith and unbelief or, or unbelief has crept in. Right? So we can't, we can't go there, even though it can be very hard, but we must entrust our souls to the Lord. It says he's ready to judge. Think of that. This, this speaks to God's his disposition. How do you think about God? He's ready to judge. This speaks that God is prepared and eager to establish justice in his universe. God is prepared. He'll have all the facts to declare a righteous sentence. Nothing left out. He is the omniscient eyewitness. God is ready. He will judge all actions and motives of men's hearts. 
And he is ready to judge. He is eager. He is eager. You know, it's so hard for us to watch someone or groups of people or even our own kids, right? I mean, it's just so hard to watch sin at work. Evil. Especially all of those sins and evil that's done with impunity. Imagine the Lord against whom every one of those sins are. Every day, all day. Brethren, God is ready. He's ready. The reason this world goes on is because He's still saving sinners from sin. It's not because He's okay with sin. He's ready. He's absolutely ready. I'm ready. (laughs) Simply from my own sinful heart. I'm ready for that to be over with. That'll be nice. But God is ready to judge, and He's ready to judge the living and the dead. This refers to those currently alive and those who have already died. God will judge all people. And the ones who have demonstrated in their lives that Christ is their treasure, that will be the ones that God will say, enter into the joy of your Master. Only those who have seen that the only way of forgiveness and reconciliation with God is not good works, but the one glorious work of the cross of our Lord Jesus. These people, these people will be evaluated and yet be shown to be righteous in God's sight. And He will declare, enter in. But otherwise, people will be judged and all their works in light of revelation will be weighed and justice will be handed to them in eternal punishment. This will be an awesome day. I mean that in the traditional, historic sense of the word. But Peter's point is, In all your struggles with the world and all the hatred that will come your way in following Jesus, have the big picture in mind. God will judge. You do not have to. Just a couple things here, and then we're done. This holiday season, you're going to encounter family that thinks you are weird and strange. You're going to feel that in various ways. Now, some may not that much. Some may have this sort of quiet regard and they're interested in what makes you tick. Ask the Lord to show you that, you know. Have conversations with folks you've never had before. And be excited about the fact that you're in Christ. Tell them. I mean, gosh, at Christmas time, sort of an easy bridge to walk over, right? But you might encounter folks that are whispering behind your back, Well, what is Peter saying here? Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. This is what it is to follow Jesus. Not saying you've got to be happy about it all. I'm just saying don't be surprised. And leave leave the Lord to to do what he will with these folks. Perhaps it's something that's been ongoing in your life for a while and it's an impossible situation. Well, just be free from any concern, anxiety over that knowing the Lord will deal with it. One of the other things I thought was that suffering for Christ may be sort of mild and uncommon in our current context. You know, I'm not saying it's always easy 
If people are speaking evil of you or slandering you or misrepresenting you, which can happen, which has happened to me, um, that's hard. So that's not a small thing because when relationships aren't together, that is very hard. God has made us to be unified, right? And so when it's not, that's very hard. So I don't minimize that. But you know what I mean. The intense persecution and things that Christians are experiencing, say in Nigeria or, you know, historically in parts of Canada or, um, you know, the Middle East, all over, um, China. This is not really our experience yet. And so this will probably change. And so texts like these are nice because we can take them as sort of a, a, a you know, a vaccination. Right? It can, it can, it can, it can, it can help us to have this in our minds and hearts before it comes so that we have these truths to latch on to when it comes, right? And so take these things to heart. Take these things to heart. That everyone will be brought before the Lord and He is ready to judge the living and the dead. And, and for Christians, He brings that up as a way of relief. Paul does the same things. Same thing in 2 Thessalonians. It actually says that He will come and bring relief to them who are afflicted. So that day for us will be a day of relief. Um, and for some of us, more than others. And for some all over the world, some Christians going through some incredibly challenging times, it will be a tremendous relief. But we always must live there, brethren. We must realize our battle is, is, is really fought on our knees and with truth and with love and with, and with our brothers and our sisters praying with each other um, and knowing ultimately the Lord will settle all accounts. So... That's verse 4 and 5. We'll pick up verse 6 and that enigmatic text next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy scriptures. Lord, help us to live in light of them. And Lord, be, oh Lord, just help us to be encouraged and spurred on because of them. Help us to remember, Lord, that you desire the best of our time and energies and efforts. And Lord, certainly you know we have to you know, tend to families and jobs and these kinds of things, but there's a way we can do those things that honor you in a way that shows that we don't. And there's a way, Lord, that we can, Lord, just neglect the body that shows we don't give you what's best. And Lord, that's, we don't want that. Lord, I just pray for all my brothers and sisters in here, if they realize in here that they've been just meager in their offering to you, they're more enamored by the world and by, I don't know, Lord, just entertainment or whatever. Lord, just convict them that life is far more than these things. The advancement of the gospel, living for you, caring for one another. Lord, that's what it's all about. Father, we also just want to pray for two, two um, individuals, or three really. Gwen and Steve, Lord, as we as we think about them, as they've been just isolated a lot and just due to Gwen's um, surgery. Father, we pray that you would draw near to them. We ask you, Father, that you would just, as they have time in your word, Lord, that you would speak volumes to them about your goodness, grace, and glory. And we know that being tired and in pain, Lord, is so hard to get your mind focused. So, Lord, we pray you'd give supernatural strength there. Um, We pray that you'd move the body to continue to reach out and love to them. Um... And Lord, I also just want to pray for Andrew as he's in urgent care now. Um, Lord, we ask you that you would draw near to him, that, um, 
Lord, whatever's going on with his breathing, that you would help him. And, um, and so, Father, just, just pray that you would um, just give us a good report. And um, as we know, our brother suffers so many different things. Just draw near to him and let him know that you love him, that we love him. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.